Talk Radio for inquisitive people. Solace Radio, Bonavista, Colorado. It's very interesting that um, the parasha that we're studying today, that we're reading from the Torah today, the beginning of Numbers, Bemidbar, in the wilderness, coincides with this weekend, with Memorial Day weekend. It's so interesting uh, because uh, I don't know what most people think about the book of Numbers. Most people hardly read the book of Numbers because it's full of numbers. And they get bored. But actually, if you take the time to read the book of Numbers, you really find some incredible treasures, incredible nuggets of treasure from the Lord in, in the book of Numbers, the Ben Midbar in the wilderness. Actually, in some ways, describes our own walk with the Lord, often. So today, if we could... Um, yeah, there it is. Today, um, not coincidentally, I'm sure, we are reading from the very beginning, the first Aliyah and the first Parasha of the book of Numbers. In the, in the first Aliyah, we wonder why God numbered Israel. God numbers the hairs on our head. He didn't need to number Israel. But God numbered Israel for war. Isn't it interesting? Because usually when we think of Israel, we think of Israel as this spiritual nation, you know, and Israel was called to be a spiritual nation. But in the book of Numbers, we see that God numbered Israel for war. Ben Midbar, uh, which means in the wilderness, and this particular portion covers uh, almost four entire chapters, chapter 1 through chapter 4, verse 20. We're just going to look, we're going to look through different parts of the, of the, of the Torah portion this week, but, um, but particularly focus on the first few verses. This moral day connection is very, very interesting. And just remember, there's no coincidence in the Lord. He arranges, he orchestrates. <clears throat> this remembrance of the fallen, the military fallen, who have fallen in battle uh, in military campaigns, was officially set in 1868. That's when the first Memorial Day was uh, officially designated not necessarily unofficially observed, but officially observed as a designated time of commemorating the lives of those lost, particularly at that time, particularly from the Civil War. Now, those of you who have studied Civil War history know that when this commemoration was declared to be a national holiday or a national observance, that the South did not observe this holiday on the same day. Because there were still some, oh, I don't want to get into it because if you are into the Civil War, I don't want to cause any enemies here. There were still some feelings about the, in the South, and uh, there were still some tensions between the North and the South. And so uh, back then, this holiday was commemorated, uh, this, this date was commemorated as a holiday, uh, particularly remembering the Civil War lost. We now include all uh, military lost, uh, particularly those, uh, particularly as we focus on those who are lost in wars and military actions. And so that's what we do this weekend. It's not just, uh, you, know, you know, churning up the barbecue grill and cooking hamburgers and having the family over. That's nice. Uh, but the real reason we celebrate this is because we remember that some people had to go to war, some people had to fight battles, and some people had to die. It's sad but true. Um, war is inevitable. 
Whenever there's civilization, which is not so civil, there's war all through history. You can't get away from it. Israel's preparation began with God saying, I want you to number the people. And so that's where we get the book of Numbers. We call it the book of Numbers, but in Hebrew it's really called Bemidbar in the wilderness. In Numbers chapter 1, in verse 1, we find there that one year and one month after Israel was delivered, delivered from Egypt and from slavery in Egypt, they were called to assemble for this numbering. God was going to prepare them for war. The Mishkan was completed. The entire tabernacle was ready to mobilize. And that N-A mean, does not mean non-applicable. It means Nadav and Avihu, the two, son, the two eldest sons of Aaron, are now dead. Because they, came, they were appointed as priests in the holy place. And they came in with strange fire and God took them. Fire came out of heaven and God took them. So Nadav and Avihu, at this point, are dead. And they're only, Israel is only one year old as a nation and already had the severe lesson of the holiness and the presence of God. In verse 2, Moses is commanded to, and he commands the leaders, to take a census of all the congregations of the sons of Israel, the families, the households, the names, every male, each one. So God is interested in the whole and in each one. But that's who he is. God is interested in the whole nation, and he's also interested in each individual one, just as he is with us. He's interested in us as a whole congregation, but he's also interested in every individual in the congregation. And he's very cognizant of the whole and of the each. So this is the command God gives to Israel. Take a census or number all the congregation of Israel. In verse 3, he says, I want you to number only the ones from 20 years old and up who are able to go to war. Number them by armies. By armies? Wait a minute. A year ago we were slaves. Now we're armies? Yes. God views people how he views people. You know, we might view ourselves as one thing, but God views it, may view us as another thing. We may view ourselves as a ragtag congregation, you know, trying to survive in the city of Dallas. And God may view us as the armies of the Lord of hosts. Sometimes we need to get a vision that is God's vision and not just our vision. God has, for the most part, a greater vision for us than we have for ourselves. In fact, he sees men as men of war. People, not just men. I'm not being... Um, never mind. I won't get in trouble here. <laughs> The grand total of the number of the men that were 20 years old and up were 603,550. That was the grand total. This was their army, a 603,550-man army from the ages 20 years old and up. I don't know if they stopped at a certain age. It was from 12 tribes. But you know, at this point in history, there were 13 tribes. Did you know that? Sure you did. Joseph was broken up into two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so all the 12 tribes were numbered, but not the Levites. The Levites were exempt from military service because they were the ministers to the Lord, which is right there in verse 4. So, who wants to fight a war? Definitely not slaves. In fact, slaves couldn't learn 
how to fight a war when they were slaves. So Israel didn't know how to fight a war. They weren't trained. I mean, now they've been walking through the desert for a year. They've been hanging out with God at his mountain. But they were not trained militarily. You would not train a slave militarily because you'd be afraid that the group would rise up against you within your own country and and overthrow the government. So these slaves were definitely not trained, these Israelites. So who wants to fight a war? But free men must fight. It was for freedom that Messiah set us free. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Free men, slaves don't fight. Slaves do what they're told. They don't fight. Free men fight. That's just the way it is. And are we free? Yes. We've been set free by Yeshua the Messiah in the Spirit, not just in our nation here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, we read, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Now you may say, Wait a minute, I, just, I didn't join an army when I, became a, when I became a follower of Yeshua. Oh, yes, you did. Yes, you did. You may not have known it at the time. You know, somebody sneaky, a recruiter came along and said, Hey, you want to believe in Yeshua? Well, he didn't tell you about joining an army. But the followers of Yeshua are an army. In fact, Rav Shaul says, We do war. We enter into war. We just don't war with the weapons that, the, that people do f- with flesh and blood. We don't use guns, rifles, swords, knives, etc., etc. We have other means that are spiritual means. And the casualties uh, of Israel's war in the wilderness here, look at this. These are the casualties. 605,548 casualties. That's only two less than the entire number that was numbered in the wilderness. That's the casualty list. Israel suffered a huge casualty loss. Why? Because of their unbelief. Not because they weren't trained militarily. Not because they didn't know how to fight. They lost the war because of unbelief. They didn't believe God. And so all of them died in the wilderness except two, Joshua and Caleb. And you know what? They went on to fight with the next generation. (laughs) In fact, Caleb was 80-some years old when he says, let me have them. Give me that hill country. Let me take that mountain in his 80s. And you know what? He did. Men of war. But we don't want war. I mean, you know, when I was younger, uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, it was this. Peace, brother. We don't want war. But the book of Revelation tells us this in chapter 12, verse 7. And there was war. In heaven, whether we want it or not. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war over the woman that is Israel. Whether, friends, whether we like it or not, there's war. In verses 8 and 9 of, book of Revelation 12, they were not strong enough. That is the great dragon. And in those verses, we see that the great great dragon is also called the serpent of old, the devil, and Satan. So there's no mistake of who we're talking about when we say the great dragon. Who deceives the whole world was thrown down to the earth with his angels. A third of the host of heaven went down with him. In the same chapter of Revelation in verse 17, so the dragon was enraged with the woman because he was thrown down to the earth. He lost his war battle and went off to make war 
with the rest of her offspring, the rest of Israel's offspring, who keep the mitzvot of Hashem and hold to the testimony of Yeshua. My friends, we don't want war, but it's here. Not because we want to make war, but because war is being thrust upon us. We have an enemy who does not want to cease making war with us. So we can put our head in the sand and we can deny it, or we can say, yeah, wow, it's really true. God is declaring to us and is revealing to us now there is a war going on. It's a spiritual war, and often it manifests itself in physical ways. But there is a war. It's inevitable. We can't hide from it, but we can fight. We can fight. He's making war with the children of the woman of Israel who keep the mitzvot, keep the commandments of God, and hold to the testimony of Yeshua. Anybody here fit in that category? Make love, not war. Peace, brother. Anybody remember that slogan? Make love, not war. (laughs) Are we an oxymoronic people? Some people think we're just moronic. (laughs) Are we an oxymoronic people? Well, sometimes we could look a little schizophrenic if we don't know how to handle it. On the one hand, Yeshua said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. But, on the other hand, he said, blessed are the peacemakers. Or he also said, love is the mark of the Talmud, the the disciple of Yeshua. If you love one another, the world will know that you are my disciple. So what is it? Are we oxymoronic? No. In John chapter 16, verse 33, these things Yeshua said, I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. So there is a place of peace that Yeshua calls us to, to be peacemakers, and that place is in him. It's hard in Western thought to think in these terms, how do you become in someone, or how do you get in someone? But in Eastern thought, this is talked talk like this all the time. You find yourself in union with someone, with with, uh, in this case, it's supernatural because the Spirit of God places us in that union with the Messiah and places the Messiah in us, and he actually lives in us. But in natural terms, we could say when we adopt someone's ideals or ways or thoughts or philosophy, etc., etc., we become one with that person. In fact, I would venture to say that most of us who have children <clears throat> have children who reflect us as, a, as parents. Now, oftentimes, we might find ourselves saying, no way, that kid, I don't even know whose kid he is. He might be mine, but he doesn't look anything like me. My friend, he looks a lot like you. Am I stepping on any toes yet? So Yeshua says, in me you have peace, but in the world you're going to have war. That's the nature of it. And this is not only theological, by the way. War is a fact of life in our world until Yeshua comes, until he reigns. And when he comes, he's going to make war, by the way. When he comes, he's going to fight a great battle, and he's going to win, and then there'll be peace on the earth for a thousand years. We call it the millennium. But until that moment, when Yeshua comes and makes peace on the earth and rules the earth with a rod of iron as the king of kings, war is going to be a fact of life. That's just the way it is. Sad but true. And casualties of war are inevitable and sorrowful. Love is also a way of life until Yeshua comes. So we live with these two things in tension. 
We know there's going to be war, and yet we know we're called to a life that reflects the love of God, not only in us, but through us to one another and to others. So it's a way of life. Just like war is a fact of life, love is also the way of life. We're not called to be warring people as a way of life. We're called to be loving people as a way of life. War is just a fact of life. Rav Shaul writes, love never fails in 1 Corinthians 13. In 1 Corinthians 14, he says, pursue love. Be active about it. Be proactive. Pursue love. In Mark 12, we find Yeshua saying, love your neighbor. It's the, it's the pillar of the Torah. Love your neighbor. We're called to a life of love. That's, that's what we're called to. But we should never close our eyes to the fact that we live in a world of war. And sometimes we're called to really fight, stand up and fight. Love at first sight is easy to understand. It's when two people have been looking at each other for years that it becomes a miracle. <laughs> I wanted to share some devilish tools of war with you. These are tools that the enemy uses, the devil, the dragon, the serpent of old, Satan. And, and I'm only naming a few. Discouragement may be his main one. That's to take courage out. Discouragement means to take courage out of someone. That's why the scripture calls us to be encouragers, to put courage in fellow believers. Discouragement, discontentment, that's an unwillingness to be pleased or an unwillingness to be satisfied. These are devilish tools and I want you to recognize them. Divisiveness, that is intentionally breaking up unity that God has put together. God commands the blessing upon people who are unified. Just in Psalm 133, he says, uh, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. He says, there it is that I commanded the blessing. Darkness, that's the absence of light, which is not a, you know, doesn't take a brain, a, a, a rocket scientist to figure that out. But the absence of light causes stumbling. When you don't have any light, you begin to fall. Deceit, that is tricking, misleading, that is presenting falsehood as truths. And by the way, when a person is deceived, when a person is deceived, he usually doesn't know it. That's the nature of deception. You think it's the truth, but you don't know it's a falsehood. And that's because you're deceived. When you deceive others, it's usually known, and you're usually doing it on purpose. And the other person may not know it because you're presenting a falsehood as if it was true. It's a devilish tool. Dull our hearts and our ears. That is to say that we can no longer hear Hashem. We can no longer hear God or the voice of the Lord. Or at least not hear Him clearly. And that may come as a result of being involved in activities that we shouldn't be involved in. Or walking in unforgiveness. It comes in lots of ways. But the devil, the devil is happy to provide discredit us. That is to say that a devilish tool of war is trying to take away the very validity of the call of God that's upon us. By whatever means. If you're a marriage counselor, a devilish tool will come in the form of temptation so that you might fall in sin and your entire career in marriage counseling will be ruined. Or a pastor or a messianic rabbi or whatever. If we have a call of God upon us as a congregation to be a light to the Jewish community, somehow a devilish tool would come by the enemy to try and discredit us from 
being a valid light of Yeshua into the Jewish community. However that may apply. All of these devilish tools were found in the wilderness among Israel in the book of Numbers. For 40 years, these tools were used against Israel. And the only way, my friends, to thwart these devilish tools is to hold up the shield of faith that God has provided for us as part of our armor. To hold up the shield of faith that when the enemy fires those darts of his devilish tools, that we can, be, we can extinguish them with the shield of faith because we don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. How do we get discouraged? When we begin to see things or hear things and the courage just gets sort of zapped out of our hearts. But if we can walk by faith, those things can be nullified by faith in Yeshua. Not that we should stick our head in the sand, but we remember what God says about us. Adonai's response to these devilish tools, to discouragement, Psalm 31, verse 24. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. Now, I could probably have written a hundred scriptures like this. I only have one here. But this is the word of the Lord. This is the response of God to these devilish tools. Be strong and let your heart take courage, you who hope in the Lord. To discontentedness, 1 Timothy 6.6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Isn't that good news? I mean... When, when, you, when you yourself or you find someone who just cannot be satisfied or just cannot be pleased with anything you're doing or anything we're doing, just remember this. That's a devilish tool. Discontentment is a devilish tool. And if we understand the word of God correctly, we, we know that godliness and contentment means great gain. So my friends, if you want great gain, and if you're inflicted with discontentment, find contentment walk in godliness, it will be tremendous gain to you. Divisiveness, Ephesians 4.3, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now again, I could probably have written you 50 scriptures in terms of preserving unity. Adonai's response to darkness, Colossians verses one, chapter 1, verse 13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have forgiveness of sins. My friends, we don't have to walk in darkness. He has actually transferred us out of darkness into light, into the, into the domain of his Son, into the domain of Yeshua. Deceit, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to the Messiah. See, too, it means that we have somewhat of a, of a responsibility in this, in the Spirit. Now we have to develop some discernment. But deception is definitely one of the devil's tools against us. The dulling of our hearts, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. Solid food is for the mature, who, due to practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. My friends, when um, the prophet Zechariah sought the Lord, and the Lord gave him words as a prophet, in chapter 7 of Zechariah, he explained to Zechariah prophetically what happened to his fathers and what has to happen to Israel now and in the future. He says, your forefathers 
became dull of hearing. He says, first I would speak to them, and they would have a stubborn heart. He says, then they would turn their shoulders. Then they became dull of hearing. He says, then they became hard-hearted, and I couldn't reach them at all. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. First, we just sort of stop listening to the words of the Lord. Some other words are speaking more loudly or more pleasurably to our hearts. Then the Lord speaks a little more clearly, a little louder, and we, we, we turn a stubborn shoulder because we can hear it, but we don't want to hear it. Then we become less and less familiar with the voice of the Lord, and our ears become dull. And when God speaks, we can't discern the voice of the Lord anymore from these other voices we've been listening to. Then our heart, our heart becomes hard. Why? Because the Word of God is no longer cultivating. The Spirit of God is no longer stirring up and turning the ground of our heart because we've stopped listening to His voice. So Adonai says, we need to be eating solid food. That is, we need to be digesting the Word of God. We need to hear His voice. And then we need to put it into practice. Yaakov, or James, says to us, don't fool yourself. Those who just hear the Word of God and don't practice the Word of God are, fool, are, are just fooling yourself. He says, be doers of the Word, not merely hearers. So if you begin to put into practice the Word of God, your senses begin to get trained. Your spiritual senses become trained. And you can begin to discern good and evil. Adonai's response to the attempts to discredit us, Deuteronomy 32, verse 36. For the Lord will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 20, he says, Take precaution so that no one will discredit us. So there's, again, some responsibility on our, on our part. And as we walk uprightly before the Lord, the Lord will vindicate his own name in us and among us. In Romans chapter 11, verse 29, I want you to know that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So what, is, what does the devil want to do when he tries to discredit us? He wants to rob us of the calling of God that's on us. He wants everybody to know that we missed it. The call of God really is not on us. We're just faking it. We've been walking in this way out of delusion. But my friends, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God puts them on you, and he doesn't take them back. It's just our responsibility now to walk it out. To walk it out by faith. Rav Shaul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, Your life is hidden with Messiah in God. You know, when I look at myself, when you may look at yourself, when we look at ourselves, we might think, what is Marty talking about? <laughs> you know, I don't look anything the way like Marty is describing it. But you know, our lives are hidden with the Messiah in God. When Yeshua comes and he is fully revealed, we also will be fully revealed. The true life in us will be fully revealed. We only see in part now. That's what Rav Shaul writes in 1 Corinthians 13. We only see in part, we only prophesy in part, etc., etc. It's like we're looking through a, a glass, and sometimes I think it's like these glasses, dimly. I've heard other people talk about this, you know, when you get older and you have to wear glasses, it, 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 people are constantly wiping their glasses because it almost seems like they're foggy all the time. Well, my friends, in the spirit, that's the way it is. And we can't, as hard as we wipe, we can't clear it up. <laughs> right now, in this state of being, our head, our, our, we have a heavenly citizenship and we're seated in the heavenlies. 
with the Messiah. But our feet are on the ground, and we have to deal with all the earthly stuff. In other words, it's like what Yeshua said, we are in the world, but we're not of the world, because we're of him. So our lives are hidden with him, with the Messiah in God. And when he is revealed, we also shall be revealed. In Psalm 27, verse 5, For in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. When the war gets too heavy, God has a secret place for us. And it's a place of peace. Yeshua said, In me you will have peace. In the world you will always have tribulation. Psalm 31, verse 20, You hide them in the secret place of your presence from the conspiracies of men. You keep them secretly in a shelter from the strife of tongues. My friends, there is a secret place in God. It's found in union with the Messiah. Does that mean when people say things it doesn't hurt? No, it hurts. It hurts. But what the enemy wants to do is take that hurt and bury us. And that's when we need to seek that secret place in the Lord where he can restore us and we can find peace in him. In Romans chapter 8, verse 37, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Well, that's where we are, friends. God has called us to be warriors because war has been thrust upon us. We cannot keep our head buried in the sand, but we must walk by faith and know that in Yeshua we are overwhelming conquerors by his power because he loved us. Father, I just thank you, Lord. Lord, we don't like war. We don't want war. In fact, our heart's desire is that Yeshua would come and come quickly to end all wars, even the wars and the struggles within our own being. But Lord, until that day, we take our stand with you. As your word says, be strong in the strength of Adonai. So we take our stand with you, Lord, that we might know your strength. And so, Lord, we pray in Yeshua's name that you would cause us to walk by faith and not by sight in these matters of war. Because our weapons, the weapons of our warfare, are not fleshly, but they're divinely powerful, empowered by the Spirit of God. And Lord, help us to learn those ways so that we might walk with you in victory. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen.